You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What you're really saying is there should be not just freedom of speech, but freedom of information. There should be freedom of information even more than freedom of speech, particularly in a world that's now being governed by information. Well, there's a cliche that we all used to believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. This never even got questioned. This was the fundamental aspect of our culture that we believe that full disclosure of everything would lead to truth. And that seems to have been very quickly revisited and rejected. We don't prefer sunlight at all. Well, and, and it's interesting too, because if you look generation to generation to generation, okay, when we were growing up, no one had peanut allergies. A generation later, because we've disinfected everything. Absolutely. You know, some huge percentage of kids have peanut allergies. And now this generation, it seems people are hurt if they hear words or if Louis C.K. says something on your stage and it was unexpected in the middle of a comedy club where nothing should be unexpected. People are somehow damaged in the way someone with a peanut allergy was a generation ago. And where does that lead? It doesn't seem like that trend ever reverses. First, we were disinfecting our food. Now we're disinfecting language. What's next? It's going to be actions and movements and no access to our data and what data the different organizations have about us. I mean, it doesn't seem like a trend that reverses. I agree with you completely. So excited to have my friend Noam Dorman on the show, owner of The Comedy Cellar. Hey, James. Your your parents gave you two difficult names to pronounce. Oh, I know. It's horrible. <laughs> so it's Noam Dorman. Yeah, and and you know I, I always curse my father for that because his name was Menachem, but people called him Manny. So he he should have been aware what he was saddling me with. But um, you know this was this was right after the uh, within. Uh, memory of 1948 in Israel and just being established and he's very Zionist. He wanted to give me a real Israeli name. And it was, it's a big burden ever since. Anyway. So, yeah, so I, I just want to mention one time I was on uh, your podcast and, and, you know, Comedy Cellar is the iconic comedy club. Uh, uh, basically, everybody knows about it if they've watched the TV show Louie because Louie's always walking down the stairs at the end of the opening credits. And then more infamously or famously, Louis C.K., Showed up and did a set a couple of weeks ago at an 11 p.m. show on a Sunday night. We'll talk about that in a in a bit. Um, but one time I was on your podcast and we were talking, and I mentioned in full disclosure, I'm an owner of 
stand-up New York, another comedy club, and you were funny. You said, okay, uh, cut the audio right now. <laughs> that was a joke, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're making a joke to <laughs> shut, off, shut the podcast off. But uh, Well, that was, I, st- I was mad at Steven about that. Why? 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 Because he... You, Rebecca Trent was on with us. She owns the Creek but and I the knew, Cave. But I knew that... No, listen, you, when you're an employer, you're an employer, you understand this, if you, as an employee, the second you start keeping um, secrets from your boss that you know he'd want to know... You you've lost your way in some way. Steven's a producer of my show, and he was working. He was actually a friend of mine, close friend of mine. He found out that you were now a, co- a competitor, as it were, and he he did your bidding and didn't tell me. Mm. And they should. I mean, he still works for me. It wasn't like a defining moment in our, in our thing. But I I say, whoa, that's not good, you know. And, and I hope he won't do that again. I yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't have cared. Yeah, that's interesting the thing. to talk about. But yeah, yeah. Maybe he didn't re- think of it was that important because you know it's. No, no, no. I, he, 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 he intended. He, he said to me, "I told James I wouldn't tell anybody." That's what he said. I told you. Oh, okay. I said, "Well, no, you can't. You have to tell James <laughs> I can't keep that kind of secret from Noam because he's paying me." That's what I told him. You have to say that to people. Yeah, and I, I did call him the next day, and I think I, I apologized at putting him in an awkward position, <laughs> but right. I didn't think it was an awkward position, but it was. Yeah, so, it was. <laughs> uh, uh, so I apologize to you about no, that. No, you didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> uh, but here we are. The Comedy <laughs> Cellar obviously is a much, much bigger place. And it's not only the Comedy Cellar, it's the Village Underground, it's the Fat Black Pussycat. You have Comedy Cellar in uh, Las Vegas. Are there any rooms I'm missing? No, you're not missing it. And then there's the restaurant. Uh, Above, it was kind of, we, we, we regard the Olive Tree, which is the restaurant, and the Comedy Cellar is the same place. Right. And then I, I, I'm always impressed. I think, I think what you've done so well, and we could kind of talk about the background, and then we'll also talk about Louis C.K. a little bit. But from my view, what you've done so well is treated the comedians great. So you know, I, the comedy cell, like typical in New York City is there's a lineup, a bunch of comedians go on, they get 15 or so minutes each, and that's their time. But if somebody wants to work on their hour for a special, whatever. You, they talk to you. From what I've heard, that you give them time in the fat black pussycat. They work on their hour there, and it seems like you've created a, a nice home for comedians that's attracted to the you know attracted the, the best comedians to your club. And additionally, of course, you have great foot traffic in the village. It's a different kind of foot traffic here in the Upper West Side. It's more family foot traffic here. So it's just a different type of audience. But uh, would you agree with that assessment? I, mean, I think I think you guys treat comedians really well. Yeah, we try to, and um, you know that. <clears throat> my grandmother was known to be just a wonderful hostess. Parties in her home, and it just was. This was one of her really defining attributes, and and that was passed down to my father. And I think it's just it's like, and and in some way passed down to me just understanding the value of treating people in your home in a certain way and small business people for the most part they do think of their businesses as their home so these guys are here and they and they sort of work for me but they don't really they're not you know they they come and go as they please and i want them to feel i want to treat them the way i'd want to treat them in my home and if you think of it that way it's not that hard to do but that's it comes from my grandmother and so 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 what's what's the history? Go give us a little background on the history. Um, I know your dad Manny started or ran, or he was he was originally he was originally a music club, right? The yeah. com- uh, Comedy Cellar. Yeah. So my father, um, 
he opened his first coffee shop in uh, 1960, I think, in Seventh Avenue South, and that became a place where local musicians would come in informally after gigs and sit around, uh, mostly acoustic in those days, and play. And Bob Dylan used to come in, Jose Feliciano, Peter Paul and Mary, a lot of people my father knew in those days. And then uh, at some point, because he was uh, Israeli, a lot of Middle Eastern musicians started coming. And that kind of became the thing. And then he got a partner and they moved on to McDougal Street, not where it is now, where Panchito's is. And he opened a, a, a full-blown nightclub with Middle Eastern music. And he was the leader of the band. <clears throat> and it was a huge success, like a big, big success. And then he had a big falling out with his partner who still owns Panchito's. And then he moved down the street to this little place where the comedy cellar is now. And you can still see it on YouTube, the band and my father in the band and SDR Booker, her husband was the accordion player in the band. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, you know, mom and pop type thing there. And so it was a music club for many years. And then that became so successful in the Cafe Walk. Uh, Cafe Walk closed in 68, but then like 73 or so, it became available again. My father moved to where the Cafe Walk was, leaving a vacuum where the comedy cellar is now. And he tried this and tried that and tried this and tried that. And then a guy named Bill Grunfest uh, who later went on to be head writer, Mad About You, came in and said, hey, Manny, I can bring comedians here. You take the door. You take the drinks, I'll take the door. And that's how it started. So, um, and then Bill left after a number of years and my father continued to run. So this was in the 80s. Like, who, what were some of the comedians you got back in the 80s? Gilbert Gottfried, John Stewart, Bill Maher. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I, shortly, I guess Ray Romano was pretty early in that. Basically all of them, except... I think Larry David came in a few times. I don't think Seinfeld ever worked there. Huh. I don't think Seinfeld ever and, worked there. Well, and you were a kid then. Um, uh, I want to get to your music in a second because you were re at first really into being a musician. But as a kid hanging out there, were there any comedians that you saw and said, oh my gosh, this guy is going to be a huge success? Did you have an eye for talent then? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, well, everybody knew. Like everybody knew John Stewart was going to be a success. Now, now there were well, what stood out about when you saw him? He was a young guy. He was, he was handsome. He was. Uh, that's not the. That's not the leading quality. He was killing. He had his own voice. He didn't require like the five years that comedians think they need to. to he hit the ground running, and it was similar to what I saw years later when I first saw Michael Che, and you just see it and like, oh, this is, this is special. This is going someplace. This can't be, you know, this is not a fluke. Same thing with Chappelle, you know, some of these guys. Now, there was a guy who's still working, Alan Havey. I don't know if he's worked here. Uh, I don't think so. He was actually the most, he was the strongest act at, in those days. He was the guy everybody wanted to be. John Stewart would look at him and say, do you think I'll ever be as good as Alan Havey? And he was leading man, handsome, and he got a movie deal, and he had the first, he, was he just came out a little bit too soon, kind of like in that uh, Malcolm Gladwell thing about, you know, having to be at the right time. So just, he had the first talk show on con on the on the comedy channel or ha before they merged and he didn't become the huge star that everybody was sure he would be and that's the one guy who stands out but other than that i think most people became stars it was pretty obvious like nobody was shocked for the yeah. most of them so so uh your dad's still running the music thing but he's also got the comedy seller where are you fitting into all of this at that point well I graduated college in 84, then I went to law school until 87. And then when I was studying from the bar, I had already decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. Everybody, I, it's like every comedian's an ex-lawyer. A lot of them. <laughs> Geraldo, like my, one of my best friends was, went to law school with Geraldo also. So we kind of knew each other through that. Um, 
So funny how the comedy cell become a vacuum. So the so the cafe where the cafe was now was kind of becoming a vacuum. So to kill time, I started a band. It was a middle. It was still like the last vestiges of a Middle Eastern band there, but nobody was paying attention to it. So I started a band Wednesday, uh, Thursday, and Sunday. Playing at your dad's place? Yeah, playing at the Cafe Fiend John. Mm-hmm. And it became a huge success. Like within six months, we had lines to come in. Mm-hmm. So that just became my career. And then we dropped the Middle Eastern. I, re- I, I retook the name Cafe Wa, which had been a famous name in the 60s. People think it's always been there, but it hasn't. And then I, that's what I did until I was going deaf in, you know, in 2009 or something. I was, or earlier, 2006, I sold it. So that's what I did. And I was aware of the comedy seller, but I wasn't involved, you know? Like I was at, I would come to some of the meetings, whatever it is, but I wasn't really involved. I was just playing guitar. Uh, you play, you play a lot of musicians, right? Like what, what musicians, well, I mean, what you, a lot of instruments, what instruments do you play? Play guitar, mandolin, bass, piano, oud. Oud. Oud, like a Turkish instrument. That's from, you know, for my father played that kind of stuff. I think that's it. And what, uh, just tell you curiously, why are you going Spoons. deaf? For all that loud music in five nights a week, you know? <laughs> And like, can you, I mean, if we didn't have, well, we don't, the mics are obviously not magnifying us, but can you hear me fine or what I can, can hear you hear? fine because you're, because you're speaking, you know, assertively, uh-huh. but like uh, when my daughter speaks sometimes quietly, if, depending on the acoustics, I'm like, what, what? I don't wear a hearing aid, but I, I, I will soon enough. Do you, do you, <laughs> does your daughter and your wife ever kind of talk really low so that they're like trying to get messages to each other without you hearing? <laughs> uh, no, they haven't, they haven't done that level of disrespect to their father yet. But <laughs> and so, so what happened then? So you sold, uh, you sold the place. You 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 slow down the music. Um, when does the comedy seller enter the picture for you? So, uh, so my father died in two thousand three, right? Or right, yeah, right at the end. So, uh, I was. He he left the place to me and his wife at the time, Ava. So I was involved in the Wah and the Fat Black Pussycat and the Village Ground and the Comedy Cellar. He had started all the other. No, rooms. those those I had started independently. The Fat Black Pussycat and the Village Underground were totally independent. So I had all that on my plate, and um, and then I only two years left on my lease in the Wah, or three years left on my lease in the Wah, and the landlord was being coy about renewing it as landlords can be. And I felt I had to throw in with one or the other. <clears throat> and since we own the building where the comedy cellar is, I decided to sell the wall. It was all, it was, I couldn't handle everything. So I decided to sell the wall and just become full-time with comedy. And I eventually bought my father's wife out, Ava, and I, and I run it independently now. And at the beginning, you, you already had some experience running a club. What was the difference between running a comedy place as opposed to a music place? Oh, comedy's way, way easier. Hmm. Way easier. The, the comedians are on time for the most part, and they're really, really happy to be there. Like, really happy to be there. Where musicians, you know, they joke, like, what's the best way to piss off a musician? Give them a gig. Like, they're just disgruntled a lot of the time. And then we had a band. My band was working four or five nights a week, which, you know, they get burnt out. And... I was in charge of all the music and the arrangements, and it was it was a big, big job. At the Comedy Cellar, are you there every night? Like you said, your grandma was a great hostess, and that passed down. Do you feel like the host of uh, the the impresario of the place? Like, are, I don't think you're there every night, right? No, I'm not. I'm I, I'm there usually uh, at least four nights a week. Usually, um, you know. Now I have young kids, and uh, the, you know, my father was uh working all the time when i was growing up he's a very good father but that 
aspect of not being there as much for the kids uh, is part of my experience growing up that I don't want, that, that I'm really making sure that my kids are not suffering that. So I just, I draw the line and I just stay home. When, when you're there, uh, it seems like you're not as much watching the comedy uh, as you're just sort of hanging out at, at the table or in the other tables and just, you're just there. Yeah, I mean, I, I watch the comedy. What, what's the hardest part of running the club? Well, right now, I have like the greatest general manager ever, Liz. I don't know if you've met her or not. Yeah. So it's never been easier because she's just that good. But previous times, everything is hard, making sure that the food comes out right, that the lights are right, that the licenses are taken care of, that the floor is clean, that they scrape the gum off the floor, that the, I mean, you name it. I mean, every aspect of, of uh, repairing the air conditioners, making sure the sound system, you know, it, it's crazy. Do you get down into those details? Yes. Okay, so that's I mean, Rego was here somewhere. He, he he'll tell you that I I don't feel that that I know every aspect of every system in the place. I I designed the online reservation system and did some of the coding. I I designed the sound system. I know about all that stuff. I had to learn to do them myself, so I did. And was it the fact? I mean, I always think of the comedy seller as like has always been big. But was it the fact that? Uh, did the Louis show take it to a new level just because it was featured every single episode? Yeah, well, it started, I think we got on the escalator, as it were, when Seinfeld was shooting his documentary, Comedian, mm. which has kind of become like a, an important documentary in the comedy world. And then Tough Crowd came. And then Louis came. And then, and then there were, you know, so, so each thing kept adding to it. And then social media came and that really gave people a, and podcasts and really gave people a much more perfect understanding of what was going on, which, I mean, if you remember in the old days, you'd have to read like some tourist guide that was obviously paid for and you would hear the description and you'd go and it would stink and whatever it was. But now people are really quite uh, informed about what the best places are, where the important comedians are performing. When, when a star dropped in, the world hears about it. So that, that was really an accelerant, I think, to business. I mean, I remember there was one day I was actually scheduled to go on your podcast, but it was the day after you had the billion-dollar lineup. Like, everybody dropped in. Who, who dropped in that night? Oh, was it? It was just a few months ago. Chappelle, you have more, it's like a year ago. Chappelle, year ago. Seinfeld, Amy, Schumer, um, Chris Rock. David Tell. Did they all plan it? Like, did they all no. call each other up and say, hey, what are you wearing? No, and, and Louis wasn't there, I don't think. No, it was all, I, think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Amy Schumer and Jerry Seinfeld had done a show together, like a talk show. Hmm. I could be getting this wrong. So they came down together and everyone else just came in by coincidence. Hmm. And, and so even now, like who, I'm sure you delight in seeing comedians rise up from the comedy cellar to stardom. Who who's kind of impressing you there now? Who's who's been amazing? Who do you see as like this is going to be a star? Oh, you know, I I I can't go on record about that stuff because the, the omissions will get me in trouble because people right. are very sensitive. But without making predictions of a star, I will tell you this: I think that Joe Mackey is uh, is one of the most original voices out there in comedy and very very smart, almost on a Louis C.K. level uh, insight into things. 
and I'm, I'm really rooting for him. I'm not predicting it, but I'm really, really rooting for him. And, and his crew of uh, Sam Morrell and Phil Hanley and uh, um, Chris Seven, all these guys, these, these guys are all really, really, really funny. So, so you brought his name up, Louis C.K. just now. We'll, we'll, we'll segue into the, oh. into the third round. <laughs> Louis C.K., of course, has been absent for, for quite a few months because ever since um, you know, he was accused of all, all these different things, he wrote uh, a, a sort of apology about it, and then he disappeared. And he, and he admitted many of the things. Yes, yeah. and he, he disappeared, and then a few weeks ago, he shows up at an 11 p.m. Sunday night show and does, I don't know, five minutes of material? 15. 15 minutes of material, and the world erupts. Yeah. Like, every question possible, like, A, should he have done this? B, was his, was his material uh, uh, apologetic enough, or what did he say? C, uh, should the comedy seller have allowed this? D, should he ever come back? You know, why should he ever come back? And... You know, all uh, you know, you and I even texted the next day after that. All these questions came up. Maybe the questions are appropriate or inappropriate. But uh, what did you think when you you know you heard after the fact, right? That he had he had been there. You get the call maybe that night or the next morning. I got a text message that night, but I didn't see it till the next morning. So like Louis C.K.'s here. Did you were you surprised? Yeah, I was surprised. I, I had thought that he was going to go, I thought a year was going to be kind of the buffer. I, th I thought he was going to wait a year. And then what did you think, what did you, so we'll, we'll get to his original uh, absence from comedy in a second, but what did you think was, his, was, if you were to give him advice, what would you say to him would be the right way, but before he came up on, on your stage, what would you have said to him would have been the right way to come back and, and, and you know, get accepted again into you know, comedy society. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, like thinking of it kind of like an election analogy, there's, there's, there's some people on either side, you know, who are just never going to be convinced. Like there's some people who, who still were supporting Nixon even, you know. But there is the great middle of people who can be persuaded one way or another. And th I think they were the people who were uh, going to watch how he did this and, and would be affected one way or another, whether they then wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. So now, now having said that, I think that he's kind of checked out. I don't know this personally, but I'm, it just seems to me that when this all happened and he was kind of humiliated, he probably just threw his phone and his computer in the, in the drawer and really doesn't realize what the atmosphere is like. So that could be the reason that he didn't do this. And probably that's not a bad thing for someone to do just for their mental health. I did it, I did it during this whole thing I had. I, I couldn't even imagine how he could have put up with this because I, you know, I was being hated, but I wasn't humiliated and I wasn't embarrassed for my daughters. I mean, you can just imagine the, the incentives to not, to just put your head in the sand and not have to deal with it. But I think that if he had come on stage and said, listen, I've been gone for a while, but I've really taken stock of myself and I've, I've, I've learned and I'm going to be different and I appreciate your, your kindness in, in um, allowing me to win your trust back or whatever it is, you know, I think that a lot of people would have felt like they were piling on at that point if they were still calling this guy a monster. Like, you know, what more do you want from him? Some people wouldn't be satisfied. So if someone starts off a comedy set saying that, it's almost like too serious. Like, if, are people going to laugh after that? It's a little harder for him to get back control of the comedic aspect. I don't, I don't agree. I, I think he could. And, 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 you know, a guy like him, he could have found a way to end it with a joke or something like that. Yeah. But he, even... 
even still, he had bigger fish to fry that night, and it right. would have been worth it, even if his set didn't go, even if it, even if it uh, detracted from his set in some way, which I don't think it would have. Maybe for a minute or two, but people would forget about it. It would have been the headline. It would have been much better. Right, and so so when after he sort of disappeared from things, you know, he he had been, I imagine, a, a friend of yours, if not a good friend. Like you, you know, you were interweaving in business just because the Louis show had so much to do with the comedy seller and vice versa. Yeah, so here's the thing. We're not friends at all. Mm. Not at all. I Did know- he just call you up and say, hey, can I um, do the Louis show credit open credits at the comedy seller? <laughs> he didn't even ask me if he could do that. Like, I didn't know he was doing that till the show was on the air. Huh. I d- he asked me, could he shoot at the club? And I said, sure. And I, and I, and I made that happen. I cleared the deck to let it happen for him. But you know, at that time, I had seen basically every project of every comedian fail. Right. So I, it's not like we said, oh, this Louis show is going to change the world of comedy. It's like, eh. I mean, he had just had a previous one in HBO that flopped. Yeah, lucky Louis. He had Pootie Tang. And, you know, this guy was not, was not hitting him out of the park. And his specials were sort of hitting them out of the park. At that point, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know. Maybe well, it was right. hilarious or... I, you know, I you're know. more into it than I am. I do remember that there was an HBO show. It was like a tribute to Seinfeld, I think. And there was like Gary Shandling, um, uh, uh, Robert Klein, I think. And then Louis C.K. was the third person on the panel. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, oh, isn't that nice that Louis being regarded in that, that, that inner circle of the best comedians? That was the first inkling I got that Louis was somebody that people were, were, that was on the rise. But nevertheless, I didn't see the show at the time as any big opportunity. And he did it. He never told me about it. And it wasn't an act of friendship. Uh, he's, he's definitely fond of the club and he's fond of my father and all that. But in the end, uh, and this is as it should be, he did what was best for his, he thought was best for his show. This was the vibe he was trying to capture in his show. Particularly time. like the, the atmosphere of the table. So just to describe the table, it's all the best comedians essentially in the city sort of gather every night yeah, at this table, and you have to be one of them to hang out at the table. There's fun conversations, and I think he was trying to capture a little bit of that in in a lot of the episodes. Yeah, he was, and 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 in the opening sequence, like this kind of like getting a pizza, kind of like a non glamorous life, and walking down to this dinky little club in in the basement. That 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 that's the sets up the atmosphere for the show to Act One, right? So that's why he did that. It wasn't out of uh, you know allegiance to me, um, and I was very appreciative to him. I did at some point come to him and thank him, and I I stopped. At first, we were charging like a little lo- a small location fee, which is normal. And I said I didn't feel it was appropriate to get any fee any longer because it was actually really benefiting the club in a way which made it just piggish. I thought to, to take any money. Um, and and then we had one interaction after that where we we had one conversation about like raising kids, but wouldn't you know that's it? Like the guy, he's he's you know he's to himself and his and his close friends. And, and you know, I don't talk too much, but I think also that's part of why I'm able to run the club well is because I don't, I understand it's my ball, so I get to play, but that's not a, that's, that's not a strong dynamic to come into a situation with. So when I see famous people or whatever it is, I really don't try to cozy up to them or have a relationship with them or pretend we're pals or whatever it is. I'm more like, do you need anything to eat? Do you need anything to drink? Are, are they taking care of you? And I leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And if something happens on its own, a conversation, yeah. I'll I'll have it. So, but after all this news broke about him, uh, did you call him up and say, "Hey, uh, what's going on?" Or 
No, I didn't even have his number until uh, later. I, I, I did have <clears throat> one conversation with him towards the end of all this stuff that, um, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't want to share, but it was, was nothing really. And um, I, I, I don't have any insight into his thinking. I, I don't know anything. It, it, did he suggest that he might be coming back soon or no. if he did come back, he'd be doing it at the cellar or? No, no. So it was just sort of like a hello, how are you doing? Hope you're okay. Yeah, it was. It was. It was I don't want to say it was, but it, it, it was. It was very much not on the subject people think we we would talk about. I, I didn't. I, I didn't deem to question him or anything. This is his business, you know. Yeah, and and for be presumptuous of me, you know. And and I sort of feel like, uh, you know, who knows really everything that happened between this set of comedians and that comedian, like you said, he admitted to a lot of the story. So we know that when he admits, it's not a he said, she said, he admits. But then there's kind of further allegations that, you know, if not him, maybe people involved with him uh, kind of uh, prevented certain uh, comedians from breaking out or having their own shows or whatever. Who knows? It seems like that's a different type of ethical violation I don't. I don't think he's ever addressed. No one's ever addressed those. So there's those are just sort of hanging in the air. So so now you you know you're you're touching you're you're dragging me into not intentionally into what is the most unpleasant aspect about all this is that merely to discuss what you just put on the table is put my head on the guillotine and be interpreted as somehow you know blaming the victims or not trying you name it like just being a, a total friggin' monster. But so I want to try to give that disclaimer. Right, and say that all I don't know anything about that, and uh, I haven't read anything factual about that. I did try to contact Dave Becky actually at one time to try to learn about that. He wouldn't. He didn't get back to me. I don't blame him. Um, and the only thing I would say is that, for instance, the, when Gawker printed the stuff about Louis, they got a lot of the story right. But there was one part of the story where they said he blocked the door and wouldn't let them leave. Then when the Times investigated it, they found actually, no, he didn't, he didn't block the door. Only to say that uh, the, the rumor can certainly be wrong or exaggerated or whatever it is, or it could be, it could be understating it. We don't know. But, you know, I, I've seen interviews with jurors at times and you just kind of saw that when, oh, when, when they were the ones, they knew they had to make these decisions, all of a sudden they take things very, very seriously. Like, and, and I think that's kind of the difference. Like the public says, well, he did this and he also, these people never worked again, whatever it is. And, and, he, and it, it could all be true. But in my position, I say, wait a second, I need to know that things are true. You know, I, I just can't smell it in the atmosphere and say, well, you know, that, that's, that's shit, you know. So I, I have to, I have to verify it. And well, why did you have to know? Just because? Well, if if people expect me to take action on something, they shouldn't fault me for wanting to make sure that I have the right to investigate it. That's mm -hmm. the thing. And this is, this is the, I mean, these are the lessons of you know since the Magna Carta or, or the Bill of Rights. I mean, of of um, due process and fairness and and giving people benefit of the doubt and perjury and uh, we got away from the idea of uh, town square justice and public humiliation and like the struggle sessions that China used to do where they just curse at people, you know. Um, 
Well, you know, I, but at the same time, I mean, this obviously just doesn't happen in the comedy uh, arena. There's sort of this trial by Twitter and trial by social media happening in almost every every area of life now. So it's terrible. And and there's no. It's hard to say. There's no. There, there's obviously no right or wrong. It's kind of a in a per situation basis. Like obviously, Harvey Weinstein is, you know, is being labeled a monster for for many good reasons. I mean, a lot of a lot of women have come out in various as all these things and have various proofs. Bill Cosby, you know, also being labeled a monster for many probably equally valid reasons. Uh, but on the same time, you have just immediate trial by Twitter and everybody just believes what the mob is saying. I, I think the trial by Twitter is almost by definition wrong. And and we do have, so it's hard to say, maybe I didn't make it clear, but we do have developed, quite developed institutions to make sure that people make amends for the things that they do, whether it's a civil court or a criminal court or even you know uh, sophisticated labor uh, procedures. And... And up until recently, we all respected that and took pride in the fact that we didn't allow, we didn't do things by emotion. We did things by procedures. And it seems like now we think that was all like a big dumb experiment. Really, the way we should be able to do it is just read it online or read, read a paragraph in the Times and then anybody who's in a position to punish ought to, ought to dole it out. And I think this is, this is just not, nobody I think really believes that that's the way the world should be. I don't think they really want that. And and I think though there's this gray area where, okay, like take someone like Louis C.K. Okay, Kendra, and, and the thing yeah. with like the thing with the, them, Louis interfering with people's work, I mean, somebody should take him to court for that. That is not something that you can't get redressed in a court for. If you interfere with somebody's ability to, to contract, uh, a tortious interference, I don't remember, the, but that, there's definitely a legal doctrine for that. And then you go before the court and they take evidence and they punish. And that's as it should be. And, and, and if somebody should be punished, I hope they are punished. But you can't just put it out in the atmosphere and expect you know, somebody 15 years later to say, you know, I heard that you might've done this, so you're out of here. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, 
where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's interesting because obviously there are criminal situations where someone could either go to jail or pay like a big Weinstein fine. or Cosby. Right. Then there's civil uh, situations where someone could be sued and then owed money, and it's not quite criminal. The evidence, the 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 standards aren't the same for criminal allegations. It's easier to but, prove. Right. And then now we're getting this gradations though into mob justice, where someone like an Aziz Ansari. Uh, Regardless of what you think of the situation, like you know, I've heard women describe it as either a bad date or another instance of you know patriarchy gone wild. Uh, uh, but uh, that's where there starts starts to be a gray area. What what is the quote unquote punishment? Is his career over? Uh, is he does he come back? Is there is this meaningless? So we start to get into these into these gray areas, and and Louis C.K. While not as gray, he did, you know, he, he is maybe the, you know, arguably one of the greatest comedians of our time. And uh, he did come out with 
his statement admitting these truths, which many people did not do. Uh, he didn't appear to do anything illegal. No one's taking him to court for anything. It, it might have been illegal. It, it might be indecent exposure or something. I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's in a private place. I don't know if it's indecent exposure. The Times, you know, if you can read between the lines, the Times reported it as sexual misconduct. They so that to me felt like their lawyers had felt that there was nothing there which they could say Louis C.K. accused of criminal anything. Right, and we're not we're not defending it. We're just trying to define. Yeah, could, could I just stipulate that I I I've been accused of not believing the victims. Nothing can be further from the truth. And as a matter of fact, they tweeted out recently a much more detailed version of the story, which really I was taken aback by because for instance, in the Times article it just talks about worrying that Dave Becky or that there there might be repercussions to them. But they tweeted out recently that he told them that he would bury them. I'm like, well that's 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 really serious, you know, and I, I, it, it rings true when they say it. I just get put in this impossible position, and I, I, mean, I just can't say it enough that it's not about not believing anybody. It's not. I, I, I take everybody at their word. I don't know what else, how else to put it, but it's, it's an impossible position to be in. So, 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 um, your first reaction when you heard that Louis C.K. was on the night before, did you think he should have waited a little bit longer? What was, what, was, what was your immediate first reaction? Were you like, oh shit? No, my, my, my immediate reaction when I saw the text messages was, was positive. Like my gut reaction was, oh good, this is, this is probably gonna be a good thing. And then I asked, <clears throat> I checked in on the audio of the performance. And then when I heard what had gone on, I, I said to my wife, I said, oh, this is, this is not gonna be good. Why? What, what, what did you hear? Because he didn't address it. And because some of the, uh, some of the things he touched on were, I knew it would be, um, by the way, if you heard it, it wasn't bad. It really wasn't. It wasn't like a, a, a defiant joke about rape or something like that. He was talking about whistles and plays on words and as clean as a whistle and his rape whistles and blah, blah, blah. But I knew that the word was going to get him in trouble. And then why, we, why don't you think, and Louis C.K. is a pretty aware guy of words. Why do you think he wasn't aware that that word would get him, or you think he was testing the crowd? Or why do you think he wasn't aware that that word would get him in trouble? I think it goes back to what I said before. I think that he just maybe unplugged and didn't just really didn't realize how much residual anger there is about not just him but the whole Me Too movement and how you know I, and how bad Twitter is and how people are buckling to Twitter with James Gunn and all kinds of things. I don't know. I don't know. But and then I got then we got a really bad complaint shortly after that from a customer who'd been there the night before, like a guy who was screaming at me on the phone, whatever it is. And then I knew we were, in, you know, we'd stepped in. So a guy called. You didn't know him. He wanted to. He he had been at the at the thing. Yeah. And what did he say? He said I was. What, what did he say? He said I was there with my in laws, and we were we 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 come to the comedy store to have a good time, and you know this was upsetting them, and how could you do this to us? And now, and I let him speak, and then I I gave my side, and since then we actually became friends, and he actually. I don't want to mischaracterize what he said, but he he came in and he offered to tell people, the media, that he thought he'd kind of overreacted. Mm. Um, so I think once he heard my arguments and he read the Hollywood Reporter interview and stuff like that, he said, you know what? It, all right. I, but he still, if only he had said something in the front, then my mother-in-law you know, would have been placated kind of. She she was more conservative in some way and it would have been okay. So- he, And then there's a, there was also women who complained afterwards 
um, that uh, they, 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 since, since it wasn't pre-announced, they felt like they were suddenly in this uncomfortable situation where they were dealing with their own maybe tragic situations from the past, and now they were confronted with someone who had been conflated to as part of this whole Me Too movement. Yeah, well, they didn't. They didn't contact me, and then we, you know, we we contact all our customers and get feedback. And I didn't. I hope this isn't wrong. I hope they didn't actually contact me, and I I didn't see it or something. I was answering every bit of mail, but I only learned about them reading about it. So I, I never had the chance to interact with them. I don't so, think. So, so like, uh, and I've heard you say this, that you wouldn't do anything differently, but given everything that's happened, let's say you were there that night, would you have kind of pulled Louis C.K. aside and said, hey, just say something up front? No. Or what, would I, you have done anything differently it, if, if you were there? If he, had, if, he had, if he had spoken to me about it, then I would have offered that opinion. But I would have not presumed to have gone up to him and told him that, you know, unilaterally or you know, uh, gratuitously. No, I wouldn't have. Because, right, because, but I would, but I would have trusted him to know how to handle it too. Right. Wouldn't that, even occurred to me that he wouldn't do that. Right. So that was the, the maybe the most surprise to you was that he didn't do anything to address it. But the argument a little bit is, and but, I forgot. But can I just say? But that's really that's his, like from his point of view, he 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 wrote that apology, I use it in quote statement, and you or I may think that it was inadequate in certain ways, but he may think, well, that's, no, I, I, I've already copped to this and I've already said what I want to say about it and I don't want to say it again. And you and I can say, well, Louis, I think it's wiser for you to say it again. And, we, and he says, no, I, I don't want to. I, I've, I've said everything I want to say about it. And that's between him and his audience. That's, my, like, that's, that's not my place as the club owner to tell him how to handle not only his career, but the things you know that are so personal to him and what he's done wrong and, and how to handle it. It's just not my business. And you know, uh, obviously this is, this event of Louis C.K. performing at your club is almost more, the meaning of it is almost more symbolic than what actually happened. Because clearly comedians go on stage and say horrible things. And some comedians are horrible people. Some things we know about, some things we don't some things people whisper about, but everybody gets the platform on a comedy stage if they're a professional comedian and they're not in jail. So uh, I think all the criticism of, oh, you shouldn't let him on, you have to ask, and I think you, you have asked the question, where do you, if you start doing that, where do you draw the line? Is there an actual line? Because, you know, obviously free speech is allowed. Obviously co comedians have earned their place to be on whatever stage they're on when when does there become a free line where you do start to doubt whether someone should be on stage or not assuming they have the skill to be there well of course the 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 easy it would be easiest to make the decision if it was just you know plainly bad for business you know if everybody just gets up and walks out when somebody goes on stage then it's like well obviously i can't put you on i'm 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 here to i'm here for my customers but this is dicier because uh the, the customers are interested to see him, even the customers who hate him. I don't think that's the same thing as saying they're not interested to see him. And because everybody, it's like watching a, a reality show. Everybody wants to see a train wreck, also. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they people go to a com. If people just want to laugh, I always think they, there's plenty of YouTube videos that are funny that have nothing to do with stand up comedy. I think a little bit of going to a stand up club is there's something's going to happen. There's an experience of it as well. Yeah, without a net, you know. So, 
So then the question is, you know, when am I supposed to make decisions? Now, I always have the right to exercise my personal morality. There's not a free speech issue in that sense, but I I understand that um, everything I do is a precedent. And then very quickly, I'm going to be have to account. Well, why did you do it with this guy, and not with this guy? Like, well, if you didn't let Louis on, so why are you letting Aziz on? And then I have to start distinguishing between Aziz and Louis. And they're like, oh, really? So you think that Aziz's victim does him? You 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 just get into this bottomless pit. And I've and I've experienced some of these things in in the back and forth I've had with customers who emailed me about this stuff. They're they're basically just as mad about Aziz. And to try to distinguish them in their mind is showing that I just don't get it and I'm, and I'm a monster. So I try to err on the side of just letting it be. And now it would be easier for me, like things like any, anything to do with anti-Semitism or, or Jewish like that, well, I can just let them on and no one's going to question me on it because nobody, nobody thinks I'm not sensitive to the Jewish people or something. And I would, like I wouldn't care. Like if if uh, if somebody said, I, I just don't care. I was like, it, it that's not my. I don't know. It just doesn't for, for whatever reason. I don't care. But then you have more difficult situations where somebody says something about another ethnic group, and then if you want to take this, you can't really take the same attitude because it's going to be interpreted as you don't care about the racism towards that group. So I can I can see scenarios where I would where I would have to compromise, but I would like the ethic in the world to be more the way it used to be, which is that we were prepared to just see people we didn't like. And like when I went to college, like this racist Mayor Kahana spoke at the university and nobody cared, you know? And, you know, I don't think it's wrong that the head of Iran who calls for Israel to go up in a ball of flame speaks of Colombia. I, I just think it's all fine. I just think it's all fine. I think it's much better than the alternative, which is, you know, Twitter mob filtering the world. And do you think you think we're heading in a uh, a direction where the Twitter mob it, it can't stop? We can't pull it back. Well, I think one of these big companies needs to stand up to this. But they're not. They're going yeah. further in the direction. They they're have stepping to. On the they pedal. have to because they're going to sh- they're, they're going to stand up to it, and then the emperor will be seen to have no clothes. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean that the things that people are on Twitter are upset about aren't worthy to be upset about. But that doesn't mean that they can impose their their will. I mean, everybody's afraid to say things. I can't get, I, in this whole Louis thing, I literally called up a bunch of liberal intellectuals that I know, people who write for prominent newspapers. I spoke to a labor lawyer. I spoke to an ACLU attorney. Like I really was trying to seek out people who would tell me where I was wrong. And nobody that I would speak to would want me to tell anybody publicly that I spoke to them. Hmm. Everybody is scared. Everybody's scared. Well, well, look at what happened the very next day. Michael Ian Black, a comedian, he's also an actor. He's been on the Jim Gaffigan show. He comes out and says, "Hey, the, the guy, he's only going on a stage in front of a hundred people. Give him a, give him a chance to, whatever." Uh, he was trending on Twitter for two days. There was like a million tweets against him, and the guy's the most alt left guy out there. People yeah. didn't seem to realize uh, they don't care. And and you know, then now Norm Macdonald is being crucified. I don't even know what he said, to be honest, but he's being crucified for something relating to Louis C.K. and, and Roseanne. He, he said, what he said was bad. Uh, uh, I, I mean, if, if you read the words, it was bad, but you know, we all say things that come out wrong. But what he, what he seemed to say was that what Louis was suffered, it could be interpreted to say what Louis suffered was worse than what the victim suffered. Mm. Um, that's one interpretation of what he said, which is not 
uh, on the face of it, ridiculous or just or just fundamentally not maybe without words but so fundamentally different that they should both be given equal sympathy um but i made this i think i said to you before that um not that long ago when michael richards did something really bad you know went on stage and started using, calling people the n-word he did go on letterman a couple nights later and at that time, nobody criticized Let the Letterman Show for putting him on. That didn't mean that they weren't outraged by at all. Nobody was sympathetic to Michael Richards and what he said. Everybody thought it was terrible. So, what do you think has changed in the environment? The, I think it's the it's the social media and Twitter. So, it's, so it's now there's it's not only what you say. It's there's this guilt by association of. Uh, if you even talk to somebody who the Twitter mob is against or even talk about them, you're potentially on the third rail as well. Yeah, and I guess it, and this goes to this book, Coddling of the American Mind, I guess it also is tied in with the the younger generation's view of trigger warnings and safe spaces and, and this whole, you know, the, the, the speech codes on campus and policing hate speech. There's this more and more expectation that, as I put it, that the people at the bottleneck of distribution, people who control this, are responsible to filter the world from us before it ever gets to us. We shouldn't even never see it. Ideally, we should never know about it. Like, ideally, I guess, Twitter should have, and they certainly have the technology to do this, they should have been able to stop Roseanne's tweet before it even actually came out. But, but okay, but then, when do you start, when, and, and, and this is neither being left or right on politics, both sides kind of are guilty of this without realizing it. But when does it, when, how do you, why, why doesn't both sides realize this could all lead to some sort of Orwellian police state? Because that's what's happening. When yeah. you start legislating the words people are allowed to say and the people you're allowed to talk to, the, 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 the only trend is towards fascism. Absolutely. It, it's happening. And, and, you know, I would think that Roseanne tweeted that thing that it was, it was terrible but we learned something from that. And if they had stopped it before she tweeted it, we would not have learned that. So, so this what is- What do you mean we learned something from what well, she we, said? The, we learned something about Roseanne. Like we, we, we know a, a side of her now, whatever her explanation is, but you know, so I don't, so the idea of, of Twitter, if, if Twitter's bot or, you know, their algorithm had been able to identify the a, a, a ethnic joke about black people and, and stopped it right then, I'm not clear, like, is that what people want? Because then you actually leave her to be is whatever, whatever you think. And then she's, you're still watching her show. You don't know what it is. So I don't, they haven't thought through any of this. This is just emotion given a new, um, uh, a new power. But you know, it's actually really interesting because what you're really sort of saying at a deeper level is who owns, who has the right to the data, because all we're saying, all these words on Twitter, all these, and then you have to know Roseanne's race, you have to know where she comes from, you have to know who she's talking to. This is all just data. And so then to have algorithms to, to say who can say what and who can do what and what advertisements are shown, this is use of data, and the use is done by the people who own the data. So right now, Facebook, Twitter, Google own an enormous amount of data, and they're not giving it to us freely. The mob is sort of taking what we do get freely and doing something with it. But what you're really saying is there should be not just freedom of speech, but freedom of information. What Roseanne said, whether or not it's appropriate, 
gave us information about her and we do need to have that information. That's so there right. should be freedom of information even more than freedom of speech, particularly in a world that's now being governed by information. Well, there's a cliche that we all used to believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. This was like the, the um, never even got questioned, like this was the fundamental aspect of our culture that we believe that full disclosure of everything would lead to truth. Like, and that seems to have been very quickly revisited and rejected. We, we don't prefer sunlight at all. Well, and, and it's interesting too, because if you look generation to generation to generation, okay, when we were growing up, no one had peanut allergies. A generation later, because we've disinfected everything, you know, some Absolutely. huge percentage of kids have peanut allergies. And now this generation, it seems people are hurt if they hear, hear words or if, you know, if Louis C.K. says something on your stage and it was unexpected, in the middle of a comedy club where nothing should be unexpected, people are are somehow damaged in the way someone with a peanut allergy was a generation ago. And where does that lead? It doesn't seem like that trend ever reverses. We're we're now first we were disinfecting our food. Now we're disinfecting language. What's next? It's going to be actions and you know movements and you know no access to our data and what data the the, the different organizations have about us. I mean, it doesn't I, seem like a trend I, I that reverses. I agree with you completely, and and the you know and and these were the kind of huge thoughts that were going through my mind as I was contemplating what's going to happen when Louis comes back. And I, at one point, I'm like, who do I think I am? Like thinking that my little thing here, even to have the, to think that I'm involved in the, such a huge worldwide influence of issues. But I did think that it, it would matter, and it, it turns out it, it really did. You know, it, it is a little. Um, uh, what's the word for it? You know, it, it whatever, it's like, it, it represents this whole issue all tied up in one in this whole Louis thing. Every single aspect of what you're talking about came to play here. Right, because you you have to decide even more than freedom of speech, which is freedom of information. We the, Since he was so much in the news as part of symbolic of what was going on in the Me Too movement, we have the right to see what he's going to do as a world famous comedian. We, we have a right to see what he's gonna do when he speaks in front of a hundred people for the first time. Yeah, well, I say, do I really believe that freedom, that the, the default position should always be towards freedom of speech? Do I really believe the lessons of due process, of procedures, of benefits out of, of, of investigations? Do, you know, do I really believe that that uh, the, the Twitter mob shouldn't have any say? Like all these things are all, all at play here. And, um, you know, I think it's terrible that, that NBC didn't put Norm Macdonald on. I, it's like the, the earth would not have crumbled if they had. Right, and it's so different, as you say, from the Michael Richards case where he was on David, as wrong as he was, he was on David Letterman three days later with Jerry Seinfeld sitting right next to him. Yeah, they, they, they don't have to, and it's, they need to stop thinking that you're, you're advocating for him or you're sympathetic to him just because... Just because you have him on. I mean, Steve Bannon goes on 60 Minutes. People understand the journalist probably doesn't like Steve Bannon. I don't know. I don't know where it's leading. I think it's not, people are not giving it sufficient thought. And I've noticed in all this thing that when I try to talk to people about it, they really just start calling me names. It's, it's been very upsetting. Like you just can't, you, you can't have a conversation with people about it. And I think you shouldn't. I think my advice to you now is Shut just up. to is just to ignore <laughs> as much as possible yeah. and let the free markets decide. But I'll, I'll ask you one final question: uh, as a brand new beginning comedy club owner, uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give me? 
Location, location, location. Unfortunately, we're in <laughs> the, the Upper West Side. No, you hit on it. That, that is going to be your headwind always. It's yeah. a, it's a, I think you're probably, you, if, if we switch places, you might be exactly the same situation I'm in. I, I don't know you that well, but I, I'm pretty sure you're smart and doing most of the things right. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Noam Dorman, uh, I love the Comedy Cellar. I love going down there. You have great comedians there. Anybody could show up on any given night, as we know. And uh, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Will you have me back on your podcast? Absolutely. I, I love when you come on the show. Excellent. Thanks, Noam. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.